Hey everybody, welcome to West Seattle Christian Church Online. My name is Worth. If you're new, welcome and thanks for joining us. And if not, welcome back. We're glad you're here. So we've been working through Genesis this summer. The first 11 chapters we called the preface. We're walking through the book of Genesis, which is made up of these two main parts. And the first part begins in the garden where we watch humanity spiral downward in self-destruction. And it ends in the Tower of Babel where a rebellious humanity is scattered by God. Then the second part of Genesis zooms in and focuses on just one family. And right in the middle is this story that links the two parts of Genesis together and helps us understand what the whole book is all about. So how do we get from the Tower of Babel to the story here in the middle? Well, after the scattering at Babel, there's this genealogy, and it follows one of the tribes all the way down to this one guy named Abram. You probably know him as Abraham. If God has a narrative he's telling, then that story really begins with the Passover in the book of Exodus. That's the drama that initiates God's narrative. Genesis serves as the inspired kind of authoritative setup to the rest of the narrative that God is going to tell. So in Genesis, the author's talking about these big ideas like who is God, who is humanity, what's, what's the world, and what is God doing in the world, and we discover that God is looking for a partner or partners. So in Genesis 12 through 50, we meet that partner, which is comprised of this family, the family of God. So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. These are the people that you're going to meet in Genesis. And we've been learning as we walk through the life of Abraham what God's people, his household, his family is. He calls it his bet-av. So bet-av is what does it mean to be a part of God's family, this household that God is partnering with? And we, we have learned that God is looking for a people who are willing to be self-sacrificial and that this requires trust. So if I don't trust the story, if I don't trust that God is for me, that there is enough, if I don't trust that I'm loved, then I'm not going to be free to love others. Because if I don't think that, that I have enough, then I'm always going to be trying to protect what I have. And if I don't think that I'm loved and accepted, then I'm always going to try improve myself and do it at the expense of others. There are these two narratives in the world. And God is looking for somebody who will be self-sacrificial because he can use that person, that kind of person, to lay down their life to help others, which sounds a bit Jesus-y, doesn't it? Well, God is teaching his people how to take care of everybody within the bet of the household. He's teaching Abraham what it means to look out for everyone, whether they're literally part of his genetic family his adopted family or a servant in his household. And he's also been teaching Abraham how to care for people outside his bet of outsiders, foreigners, people with different color skin and languages and ethnicities, everybody else, everyone. He's looking, God is looking for a people of radical hospitality. So hospitality, radical generosity, radical love, radical self-sacrifice. So when we do a clothing drive or a diaper driver, when we go to another nonprofit and help them, or when we donate funds to the needs of our community as a church. We're just really touching the tip of the iceberg in terms of what God expects for his people. But it's also really good that we have events and projects like that because they remind us of all we're, we're supposed to be, who we're supposed to be all the time, the kind of people God can use to put the world back together. So today we're in Genesis 24 and it continues the story and it starts like this. Abraham was now very old. And the Lord had blessed him in every way. He said 
to the senior servant in his household, the one in charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh. I want you to swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth. I want you to swear by the Lord that you'll not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I'm living, but I'll go to my country and my own, but will go to my country, my own relatives and get a wife for my son, Isaac. The servant asked him, what if the woman is unwilling to come back with me to this land? Shall I then take your son back to the country you came from? So let's, let's just stop there for a minute and ask, why does he want his servant to do this? Uh, and I would wager it's because the family of Terah, the father of Abraham, uh, that family was going against the tide. They've been different. They've been going a different direction. They've been heading west instead of east. The rest of the while the rest of the humanity is going the other direction, they swim upstream. And there are two narratives that people are aligning themselves with in the world. The Canaanites and the Amorites and the Sodomites, they're all following the narrative based on self-preservation and fear and appeasing the gods, which is not a narrative of self-sacrifice. It's not a narrative of loving others. So this is not about Abraham being all prejudiced or choosing his ethnicity over another. He's like, nobody else except my tribe. This is about Abraham saying, God is doing something in the world, and you can't mess that up by letting two opposing narratives intertwine. This, I think, by the way, is what Paul has in the back of his head when he talks about being unequally yoked or light having no fellowship with, what is light, how can light have fellowship with darkness? That's in 2 Corinthians 6. The idea is we have to find somebody who's on board with the narrative of God. So Abraham is like, promise me. And Eleazar, it's probably Eleazar from Genesis 15 too. Eleazar is like, that's fine. But even if I find that woman, what if she doesn't want to come back to this kind of dysfunctional family? So this is what Abraham says in verse 6. Make sure that you do not take my son back there, Abraham said. The Lord, the God of heaven, who brought me out of my father's household and my native land and who spoke to me and promised me on oath, saying, to your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you so that you can get a wife for my son from there. If the woman is unwilling to come back with you, then you will be released from this oath of mine. Only don't take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of his master, Abraham, and he swore an oath to him concerning this matter. So he says, do not go back there. I have learned already in this story, Eleazar, that I can trust my God to provide what I need. So in fact, I am so confident that God's going to provide for this, that you are released from this job. And some interpretations say that they think here that Abraham may even be releasing Eleazar from his service. Like, you don't need to be my servant anymore. Like, you can go start your own bet off. Nevertheless, you're released if you don't find the woman or she doesn't want to come back. Now, verse 10 says, Then the servant left, taking with him ten of his master's camels, loaded with all kinds of good things from his master. And he set out for Aram Naharim and made his way to the town of Nahor. He had the camels kneel down near the well outside the town. It was toward the evening, the time the women go out to draw water. Then he prayed, Lord, God of my master Abraham, make me successful today and show kindness to my master Abraham. See, I am standing beside this spring and the daughters of the townspeople are coming out to draw water. May it be that when I say to a young woman, please let down your jar that I may have a drink. And she says, drink and I'll water your camels too. Let her be the one you have chosen for your servant Isaac. By this, I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. Now, this is really interesting. I think when we hear this, we just kind of breeze over it. But in reality, Eliezer, he's asking for something absolutely preposterous. Check this out. If you were to ask a, a Bedouin today what it would take 
to water a camel that's just finished a long journey, they would tell you that it would take 10 to 20 trips down into a cistern to, to water one camel. How many camels does he have? He's got 10. So what is he really asking for from God? What he's asking is, I want her to give me a drink, and then I want her to voluntarily offer, and without being asked, to make 100 to 200 trips down into a cistern and back up to water my camels. And it's not like there's just a pool of water right there and she's standing in ankle-deep liquid at the edge of an oasis or something. But Eliezer knows something about the Be'av of his master Abraham. What he's probably thinking is, one thing I know about my master, and, and that's that his God has called, Abraham, has called Abraham to radical generosity, to radical service. And you're asking me to find a wife for a son who will fit into this kind of family? So it's got to be someone radically hospitable in order to fit the mold. And really, it's a win-win for him because either he finds this unbelievable person or he gets to be released from the oath. So let's check out the next line, verse 15. Before he had finished praying, Rebekah came out with her jaw on her shoulder. She was the daughter of Bethuel, son of Milcah, who was the wife of Abraham's brother of Nahor. The woman was very beautiful, a virgin. No man had ever slept with her. She went down to the spring, filled her jar, and came up again. The servant hurried to meet her and said, Please give me a little water from your jar. Drink, my lord, she said, and quickly lowered the jar to her hands and gave him a drink. After she had given him a drink, she said, I'll draw water for your camels too until they have had enough to drink. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough, ran back to the well to draw more water, and drew enough for all his camels. Without saying a word, the man watched her closely to learn whether or not the Lord had made his journey successful. I mean, don't you just love that? He watched her closely to see if this journey had been successful. I mean, it's like God is like, I want this. And God's like, yeah, 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 yeah. She's right there. And I just imagine him sitting there going, you have got to be kidding me. Like, this is not happening. Verse 22, when the camels had finished drinking, the man took out a gold nose ring weighing a becca and two gold bracelets weighing 10 shekels. Then he asked, whose daughter are you? Please tell me, is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She answered him, I'm the daughter of Bethuel and son of the son that Milcah bore to Nahor. And she added, we have plenty of strong fodder as well as room for you to spend the night. Then the man bowed down and worshiped the Lord saying, praise be to the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not abandoned his kindness and faithfulness to my master. As for me, the Lord has led me on the journey to the house of my master's relatives. The young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. Now, Rebekah had a brother named Laban, and he hurried out to the man at the spring. As soon as he had seen the nose ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms, and he had heard Rebekah uh, tell what the man said to her, he went out to the man and found him standing by the camels near the spring. Come, you who are blessed by the Lord, he said. Why are you standing out here? I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man went to the house, and the camels were unloaded. Straw and fodder were brought for the camels, and water for him and his men to wash their feet. Then food was set before him. So, they're always prepared to host a whole caravan of camels and all the people. What's going on here? Well, I'll tell you what. This family, these sons and daughters of Terah, where Abraham came from, this family, there is something radical about them. And what you need to know is that hospitality here isn't just serving people some coffee or a glass of wine when they come over to your house or a little dessert or something. 
uh, they, and they stay a while and then you leave and you can go back to your regular routine for the evening after they leave. No, this is, this is a radical posture that says, I am dropping my whole agenda. I'm going to drop my entire schedule and I'm put aside my plans today because you have come into my life right now and I want to bless you because that is who God is. And what we're talking about is you've come into my life. So here I am. And God has taught me to be a person who will give whatever I have to you. So then it says, then food was set before him. But he said, I'm not going to eat until I've told you what I have to say. And then Laban says, tell us, tell us what you have to say. And then there's this whole bit where Eleazar just tells the whole story over again. So we'll skip ahead to after he gets done telling that and then go to verse 50. Laban and Bethuel answered, this is from the Lord. We can say nothing to you one way or the other. Here is Rebecca. Take her and go and let her become the wife of your master's son as the Lord has directed. When Abraham's servant heard what they said, he bowed down to the ground before the Lord. Then the servant brought out gold and silver jewelry and articles of clothing and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave costly gifts to her brother and to her mother. Then he and the men who were with him ate and drank and spent the night there. So it's amazing. Let me bless you. And they're like, no, let me bless you. And he's like, no, let me give you this. Let me give you this stuff. Let me give you this. And what's going on here? There's gifts and more gifts. And obviously there's a bride price and there's a betrothal going on here, but the generosity seems to go beyond that. And when when they got up the next morning, he said, send me on my way to my master. And this, this is right before verse 55. And in verse 55, it says, but her brother and her mother replied, let the young woman remain with us 10 days or so, and then you may go. Hmm. So first it's like, you can go, she's going to go. And now it's like, no, wait a minute. Well, is she going to go? It was looking like she would, but now we're not so sure. And by the way, this story right here, I believe this is the story that Jesus is referencing when his mother and brothers show up and he's with his disciples and he's like, who are my mother and brothers? Uh, these people are my mother and brothers, is what he says. The people who do what my father wants are my mother and my brothers. And I think Jesus is talking about this story because it's the only other place in the entire Bible besides that story that involves Jesus where a mother and brothers are mentioned together in the same place. It's the only place, other place in the Bible. I think Jesus is saying, my family are the people who want to be committed to the economy of the kingdom, which is ras radical hospitality, radical generosity, radical faithfulness, radical love. That's my family, and that's what it means to be a part of God's bet of. So now, what is Rebecca going to do? Verse 56. But he said to them, don't detain me. Now that the Lord has granted success to my journey, send me on my way so I may go to my master. Then they said, let's call the young woman and ask her about it. So they called Rebecca and asked her, will you go with this man? I will go, she said. So they sent their sister Rebecca on her way along with her nurse and Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebecca and said to her, our sister, may you increase to thousands upon thousands. May your offspring possess the cities of their enemies. Then Rebekah and her attendants got ready and mounted the camels and went back with the man. So the servant took Rebekah and left. Now, we could end right there, uh, another story of radical hospitality, but to see how it all ends up with Rebekah and Isaac, uh, we need to grapple a little bit more with the story we talked about last week in Genesis 21-22 with, you know, Abraham being willing to sacrifice Isaac. And we're not going to read that story again, but remember how it ends. At the end of Genesis 22, we see Abraham not kill Isaac, and then he comes down the mountain. And there's this interesting detail here that's 
often overlooked in that story. Why doesn't Isaac come down the mountain? Why does the author, if you haven't taken notice of this before, why does the author take the time to say that the dad and the son go up the mountain and they do everything together, but at the end, only the dad comes down? If you read it, you'll see that's the case. And my question is, what's up with that? Well, there are two strings of Midrash, uh, one that's popular and one that's not popular. And Midrash is just ancient rabbinical commentary in the text. The less popular says that Abraham actually went through with the sacrifice up on top of the mountain. And then because Abraham and Isaac were obedient, Isaac then got resurrected like he was obedient even unto death, which sounds kind of New Testament-y, right? And the other Midrash, the more popular uh, interpretation, uh, rabbinical interpretation, says that Isaac was so traumatized on the top of the mountain that he ran away afterwards. Because if you think about it, if this really happened, Isaac is probably really messed up at this point. And I want you to understand that the rabbis must be trying to point to something in that text. So if, the midrash, if that midrash were true, that means that Abraham and Sarah, they send away for a wife, for a son, that they're not actually sure if he's ever going to come home. He's not even with them, possibly, when they send their servant to go find a wife for him. Um, if this commentary is true, then Abraham and Sarah are sitting there and they have nothing because their son has left. And they've already told their other son, Ishmael, to leave as well. So they sent that son away and tried to be obedient to God's call. And then they have one last son left. And after this whole incident with the sacrifice him on top of the mountain, he has run away, according to what the rabbi's interpretation is here. Yet, they still believe in the story enough that they send away for a wife for their son who they don't know if he's coming back home. The commitment and the belief and the hope here is quite astounding. And I know you're kind of like, come on, Worth, you're making a whole lot about this Midrash thing, this ancient rabbinical commentary stuff. It's not really in the Bible. Well, let's see what the next verse says. Verse 62 says, Now Isaac had come from Ber Laharoi, which was where? Where was he? He was living in the Negev. So Isaac isn't at home. And this isn't like our world today where you get to be a certain age, like you go off to college and then you go away to live on your own. Nope. Nope on a rope. This is, this is like prodigal son type stuff. In their world, he would not have left his father's house until his father dies. Not only that, but the last time we heard about Laharoi, that was the well that Hagar ran away to in Genesis 16. So where has Isaac been living? He has been living possibly with the other part of the family. It is possible that Isaac is like, I can't believe what my dad almost did to me. I am out of here. Forget you. I'm going to go live with the other part of the family that dad told to take a hike a while back. And what is Isaac doing? Well, verse 63 is kind of curious. It says he went out to the field one evening to meditate. And that's a little bit weird too. This is the only place in the Hebrew Bible where the word meditate is used. And scholars really don't know what it means. The best definition is kind of like, Really what it gets down to is he's wrestling with something. He's uneasy. He's conflicted. And the Midrash says that he comes back home when he sees Rebecca coming in the distance. So if you pick it up in the latter half of verse 62, it says, And as he looked up, he saw camels approaching. Rebecca also looked up and saw Isaac. And she got down from her camel and asked the servant, Who's that man in the field coming to meet us? He is my master. The servant answered. So she took her veil and covered herself. And then the servant told Isaac all he had done. 
Isaac brought her into the tent of his mother, Sarah, and he married Rebekah. So she became his wife and he loved her. And Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. So we see here the moment that Isaac comes back to the story. And that's really interesting. He comes back into the story. And I think it's because of hospitality, of self-sacrifice, of love, of compassion, of looking out for others. And it's so compelling that it can bring the most traumatized hearts back into the kingdom, if, if that is what has happened to him. And, and if we really believe that story to be true, why would it, why would it not be? And, and this is instructive for us because I know some of us, some of you have been traumatized in life. You've had a crisis. Maybe it was at the hands of somebody else. I want you to know that God never, ever gives up on you. He will never give up on you in your story. And some of you have watched kids leave home, like really leave home, and you don't know if they're coming back. I would, I would urge you to not give up on love and compassion and generosity and hospitality and acceptance. Don't give up on love. Don't give up on hope. I mean, I, I know that not all stories end with Isaac coming home but don't give up on them anyway. And some of you have been the ones that have hurt others. You've made mistakes. Maybe you were even trying to do something that you thought was the right thing, or maybe not, but you look back now and you realize that you blew it pretty badly and there's no going back. And it's the story that you have. Some of you look back on the way that you were fathers or husbands or mothers or wives or kids, and, and there's these stories that want to define you. Just like Abraham and Sarah, they have to keep showing up. They have to wake up every single morning and they have to get going and they have to live their life no matter what they feel like they've done. And it's no wonder that Sarah is so furious with Abraham if you read the story. He took off with their only son and when he came back, according to the text, the son isn't there. But they have to keep showing up and they, and they don't give up hope. And this is a very complicated story and there's implications all over the place. There's, there's tons of implications, way more than I'm going to give you now, but I want to leave us with a few that I think will be helpful before we move on, before we move on to the rest of what happens in Genesis. And the first is this, God is always pursuing those, those who are pushed away, those who are abused, those who are misunderstood, those who are forgotten. And I don't know what your story is or who is responsible for your story or whether it's you or somebody else or both. Whatever your story is, God is always pursuing those who are pushed away and misunderstood. He never leaves their side. He will never leave you. And I know some of you are still working out that journey and you might say, I couldn't be further away from ever being able to trust God or his people again. And I get that. That's okay. But I want you to know that you can't run far enough away where God is still not pursuing you. You can't do anything that would make God say, well, okay, then I'm done. I'm done with you. God will never leave your side. Second thing I want to leave you is we have to honor and respect the journey of others. You can't dictate how God heals someone, someone's brokenness. And this is hard for us when we're watching somebody else who we want to come back home, who we want to be whole and fixed. And we, under, we think we understand their journey, and we might even actually really truly understand part of their journey. But the issue is this. It's still not our journey. It's theirs. You can't control or dictate how they get healed on their path. You can only honor and respect the journey that they're on as they navigate their path and the, and the brokenness and then be, for, be there for them as they do. Next, we can never grow tired of doing good. 
Never give up on the mission of God. Never give up on the narrative of what God is doing in the world. And never give up on hospitality, on generosity, and especially love. We know that not all Isaacs come home, but nothing will ever be more compelling than the hospitality and the generosity and the love and acceptance of God. Never, ever give up on that. And the last thing is simply to hope. Last week we talked about the resurrection and this idea of uh, Heneni, here I am. God says, Heneni. God asks us to say Heneni ourselves. Why? Because we are children of the resurrection and that is what hope looks like. When Isaac comes home, what will he find? Hopefully, a family in a Be'av who say, Heneni, we've never left and we're still here and we're with you and we're for you. Hopefully Isaac shows up and walks to the door and says, Heneni himself, here am I. And it's all because God, at every juncture along our way, through, through every hard thing, has looked at us and he has said, Heneni, here I am. You are going to make it. Until next time, my friends, I'm Worth Wheeler for West Seattle Christian Church Online. Stay rooted and deep in Jesus. Produce good fruit. Show up and trust to hope.